Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 18 through 36. This is the account of Peter's confession of Christ and the transfiguration of Jesus. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowd say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, The Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him, and he went up unto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving, Jesus Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Father God, as we turn now to your word, I pray that you would prepare our hearts to hear and receive it, that you would be with me as I proclaim it. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who saves sinners like us. Amen. So the book, The Pilgrim's Progress, is this famous old book by John Bunyan, and it's this allegory of the Christian life where this traveler, this pilgrim named Christian journeys through the world. It's meant to teach all kinds of things about following Jesus and being a disciple. But along the way, Christian meets this friend named Hopeful and they travel together. And then there comes this point near the end of, well, the end of the first half of the book, but near the end of their journey where they're almost to the celestial city, which is the picture of the kingdom of God with man that... Um, that waits for us in the future. 
But before that is this river, this great river that they have to cross. And this river in the story represents death and also the suffering and loss that comes alongside death in our experience of the world. This river of suffering and death with no bridge, no way around it. And so they enter into the river and almost immediately Christian is overwhelmed. Here is how John Bunyan describes it. A great darkness and horror fell upon Christian so that he could not see before him. Also here he in a great measure lost his senses. He was much in the troublesome thoughts of the sins that he had committed, both since and before he began to be a pilgrim. It was also observed that he was troubled with the sight of demons and evil spirits. So Christian starts to struggle and flail in the water, and, and that's because of what he sees. First of all, what he can't see, and he's kind of blinded by the darkness, and then what he sees, which is he loses his senses, and instead he sees his sin and the evil forces at work in the world. But then here is how Hopeful responds. Christian is floundering in the river, and Hopeful says, Brother, I see the gate and men standing by to receive us. Christian can only see the darkness and the death and the suffering, but Hopeful's eyes are fixed on the city, and he starts to speak to Christian of the hope that he sees, and ultimately of Jesus Christ and his salvation, and that vision is what changes Christian's heart. His vision shifts to that, and then the book says that they both took courage and the enemy was, after all, as still as a stone until they were gone over. Christian's gaze is cleared, and suddenly the horror of that river disappears. Here is Bunyan's point. He's speaking specifically about death at the end of the Christian journey, but also more broadly about the suffering and little deaths along the way. And what he's saying is you are going to have to enter into that river. You're going to have to enter into that river. And the thing that will carry you through it is not the depth of the river or the strength of your swimming. The thing that will carry you through it is the vision that you see on the far side. What makes the difference isn't the river, but the vision. And that, in a sense, is exactly what I think lies behind this series of stories in the Gospel of Luke. And so we're just gonna look at them and we're gonna first talk about the river, and then we're going to talk about the vision. Start in verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and Jesus asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. Now, this is an important moment in the ministry of Jesus. His disciples now have been with him for a while. They've been following him and learning from him, and he even just sent them out on this kind of apprentice journey of ministry. And so he turns to them and he says, who am I? First, who do the crowds say that I am? And they give the answers that they've been hearing from people. Jesus is Elijah or John the Baptist come back from the dead or a reincarnation of one of the prophets of old. And there's something important to understand about what that means the crowds think. On the one hand, all of those people are important. They're key figures through which God spoke in the past. 
But on the other hand, they also represent business as usual. It's still God acting in the same ways that he has up to this point. Then he asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter gives the answer that everything hinges on. He says, you are the Christ of God. Christ, that that word means anointed one, and it's the word that was used for this figure called the Messiah in Jewish belief leading up to the New Testament. The Messiah is this figure who is God's savior and God's king, this king who's coming to rule and defend and vindicate his people, and this savior who's coming to rescue them from their sins and bondage. That Messiah is not business as usual. Right? Not like those prophets, not like Elijah. The Messiah represents this fundamental change in the story of God, this new era that is dawning. And Peter has come to understand the truth that Jesus is that figure, that he has come to do something truly revolutionary. But here's what we have to understand about Peter's, uh, what Peter says here. What the Gospels go on to make clear is that in this moment, Peter is right, but he has no idea what he's saying. On the one hand, Peter is right. Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, King, Messiah of God. In fact, in Matthew's account, he goes on to talk about how Jesus, in response to this, actually named Peter, Peter, which means rock at this point, because he says that this rock, this foundation of this testimony about me as the Christ, is the thing that the church is built on. However, Peter also does not get what that means, which also becomes clear as the Gospels proceed. And we shouldn't look down on him for that. I mean, in some sense, the whole Christian life is us figuring out what it really means that Jesus is the Savior and King of God. But peter he's right, but he doesn't really get it. And that's why what Jesus then does in response to Peter's uh, statement is to explain what it means that he is the Christ of God. First for Jesus himself, and then for Peter and us, all the disciples that will ever follow after him. First for Jesus, what does it mean that he is the Christ? Verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed, and on the third day be raised. See, when Peter says Christ, what he means is, well, winner. That's that's how Israel thought about the Messiah. They're like, our history has been one of being losers for a long time, first of all. That that because of our sin, yes, because of our rebellion against God, that we were led into exile. And then even when we were returned to our land, we were under foreign rulers. And still to this day, Rome rules over us. And and so we have this history, this story of suffering and loss and death. And so they're like, when the Messiah comes, though, that's when the story is going to change. And yes, that includes a a political change for Israel, being set free, and the Messiah is this military figure for a lot of them. But also just it includes a general change in life, that they think that the Messiah is going to mean the end of our suffering and loss and death. And because of that, they expected the Messiah to be this triumphant figure that people would love him, and enemies would fear him, and he would just move from strength to strength, full of prestige and glory. Jesus says, here's what the Messiah is actually coming to do. 
He is coming to suffer many things. Suffer in all kinds of ways, ultimately to be rejected by the people and to be executed. And then after that, to rise in victory. Yes, it's not that the triumph isn't there, but that victory is at the end, it's after a life of suffering and loss and death. Just as a side note, why did it have to be that way? We might wonder that. We're so used to the idea of the cross, but why couldn't Jesus just come and be this winner? Here's what I think is the problem. We, like those ancient Israelites, we tend to view the world as if our main issues lie outside of ourselves. That our issues have to do with our circumstances or worldly opposition or challenges that life brings our way. These things outside of ourselves. Scripture, though, insists that while those things are problems, what ultimately is the problem is something that is within each one of us. Our corruption and our rebellion, and not that, just to be clear, not that some specific suffering has this one-to-one correlation with some specific sin. Scripture makes clear that's not how it works, but that in a general sense, we are the ones who created this world of suffering and loss and death. And if you took us and put us in another world, we would turn that world into a world of suffering and loss and death. And so as a result, the only way for Jesus to come and actually work salvation for his people is going to involve his becoming one of them, becoming like them in their experience of suffering and loss and death. In a sense, to be subjected to those things outside of them, beside them, but to do it as one who doesn't have that corruption and sin within himself. That is the way that God comes to work salvation. And that is why Jesus has to live the story that he does. But Jesus comes to Peter then and he redefines, first of all, what it means that he is the Christ. That yes, it means an ultimate victory, but that's only on the far end of a life of suffering and loss and death. And then Jesus says, That is true for me, and if you follow me, that's also true for you. Pick up in verse 23. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So Jesus says, My calling is to suffer, to bring God's salvation. And being my disciple means that your calling is also going to be to suffer. So you seek to bring God's salvation. I think that's meant to meet us on two levels. First, that should just shape our expectations of life in general. That Christianity does not promise you comfort or prosperity or the American dream or a more fulfilling internal life or health, or respect, or any other thing in this world. It does not promise you those things. And in fact, it tells you that oftentimes you won't have those things. And look, in a minute we're going to talk about like why that's worth it. Okay, so don't, I know this is kind of, you know, I don't want this to be all bad news or something like that. But um, I just want to say that again as clearly as I can. We should not expect to, the Christian life to be any easier than Jesus's. We should not expect our lives as Christians to be any easier than Jesus's, who was homeless and owned very little, 
and who was attacked by his enemies and attacked by his family and friends and ultimately done enormous injustice and murdered. And I know in America that saying that is not what people like to hear. But if I can just be honest for a second, we really need to hear that. I mean, I have, because of the circumstances of my last few years, I've had all these conversations with people where it becomes clear to, I mean, Christians, people that grew up in the church, what it becomes clear is that they never heard or at least never internalized the reality that life was going to be hard, at times brutally hard. And they thought that somehow because God loves them or because they're good people, whatever that means or whatever, that they're going to be spared from that. And that actually has set them up for failure and pain and struggles with faith. Now look, when I say all of that, I am not saying you should become pessimistic or cynical. And I don't mean that if you just have the right expectations that it won't be hard. Hard things are just hard. But we should not make them harder by pretending as if they're not gonna come or believing some lie that Christianity offers us something other than the life of Christ. Our expectation should be that the Christian life won't be any easier than Jesus's. And particularly out of that, we should say that that's meant to shape our expectations for ministry and discipleship. Jesus is not just saying life in general is gonna be hard. He's saying following me particularly, obeying me, seeking to serve people the way that I call you to serve them, living like me in the world, those things will particularly bring suffering and loss and at times even death. But that is what we are called to do as followers of Jesus. So that is Jesus's message, that I am the Christ, and while that means ultimate resurrection and victory, it also means suffering and loss and death in between, and that is what I have come to do. If you follow me, that's what you're going to experience as well. So coming out of that, here's my question. Here's what I want to talk about for the rest of this morning. Why on earth would we then follow Jesus? Why do 11 of these disciples continue to follow Jesus, and even though it leads them to their deaths? And why would we? Or to go back to that original image, Jesus just described the river for us, the river of suffering and loss and death. Why would we walk into that river? What is the vision that would call us to walk into that kind of life? The answer is that it's only possible if we have a vision of Jesus big enough and compelling enough to carry us into and through the river. It's our vision of Jesus. Skip back to verse 20, skip down to verse 28 with me. It says, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. So Jesus gives a few days for this to percolate, and then he takes three of the disciples, even within the 12 disciples, there's three of them that he especially invests time in and helps grow, and Jesus takes them up on the mountain, and then things start to happen. It says, And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So Jesus' appearance changes. 
His face starts to shine like the sun. His clothes become a radiant white glowing. The word is used to describe lightning. And that imagery is rich with Old Testament background, used to talk about divine beings and the glory of God himself. And with him are Moses and Elijah. And what that means isn't entirely clear, whether this is like a vision or spirits or or somehow temporarily given bodies. But Moses and Elijah are the two great prophets of the Old Testament. Moses, who led Israel out of Egypt and who wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, He's kind of like the OG prophet in the Bible. And then Elijah is the first of what we think of as the later prophets who came during the kingdom to speak God's truth uh, as Israel was ultimately led into exile. But they come and talk to Jesus, which is a way both of showing his honor and glory, but also especially of showing him as sort of the climax of the story that they both spoke to the people of God. And they're talking with him. It says, they spoke of his departure. And that word departure is really interesting um, because, of course, we know in one sense this is a way of talking about Jesus' death, which he's just prophesied. But that word is actually the word that Greek uses to translate the word exodus, like the book of Exodus, like the work that God does in leading Israel out of Egypt. And so the exodus in scripture becomes a way of explaining God's salvation, that we're slaves to sin, we're in bondage to sin, and Jesus comes to deliver us out of that slavery and to make us into a new people who ultimately hope for a promised land. And so they're talking both about the fact that Jesus is going to die and the fact that in his death, he is accomplishing what that ultimately pointed to. Which is to say, that in this moment, we see both Jesus' glory and his grace. We see his glory, the shining face, the robes, the honoring of these saints around him, and his grace. And that what they're discussing is his work of salvation in his cross and resurrection. Keep reading. It says, Peter and those who were with Jesus were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. So it's a common theme with the disciples that when Jesus takes them with him to pray, they end up falling asleep. Um, And apparently that had been what was happening, but they awaken as this transfiguration happens and they look on and they see all of this. And then after the conversation, Peter who you've just got to love Peter because he can both say something really profound a few verses earlier and then do this. He says, wait, before you guys leave, let, me, let us like make you some tents that you can wait in to these glowing heavenly beings, which is dumb. Although it's the kind of dumb that I think most of us would probably be if we had an experience like this. And then it says, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. So a cloud covers the mountain, which throughout scripture is an image of the presence of God. This cloud comes like at Mount Sinai, for example, to the top of it, and this is where God comes to meet his people. And he declares out of that cloud, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. No other human being in scripture is spoken of in that kind of direct, clear way by God. 
This is a way of affirming Jesus' uniqueness and particular place in his story. So that is the story. Now I want to ask you two questions about that story. One, what's the point of that story? And two, what's the point of that happening here within Luke? First, what is the point of the transfiguration itself? It's weird to me, actually. This story is treated as a big deal in the Gospels, but for some reason in the church, we don't actually talk about it that much. I mean, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record it, though, and while John doesn't um, record the event, he speaks in this way that, that I think actually echoes the fact that he was there and saw it when he talks, for example, about Jesus by saying, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. But what's the point of this? Well, the reason, of, the, reason the transfiguration happens is that it's meant to be an unmasking, a revealing of the reality of Jesus that in the rest of the Gospels is veiled by his humanity. I know uh, sometimes we preachers are guilty of overusing Lord of the Rings analogies, but, um, but when I think about this, what I keep thinking about is in the books and in the movies, if you've seen the movies, it, it's the way that the Lord of the Rings portrays Gandalf. Gandalf, who um, is actually, he's a wizard, and actually in the mythology of the Lord of the Rings, he's a um, uh, archangel, basically. But most of the time, Gandalf in the stories is just this kind of nice old dude with some magic tricks and cool fireworks and a glowing staff. But there are these moments where suddenly he kind of draws himself up straight and his face changes power crackles off of him, and you're supposed to realize in those moments, oh, that is who Gandalf really is. And that's what the transfiguration is doing for Jesus. This is not some just human teacher and miracle worker. This is the Son of God with a glowing face and lightning robes served and honored by the greatest of human saints, chosen and beloved by the Father. This is who Jesus really is, in a sense. And it's how the disciples are supposed to view him, even when it's not shown forth and is veiled. So that's the point. This is revealing the glory of Jesus. And then second question, why is this happening now? In particular, why does this happen immediately after Jesus, for the first time, foretells his death and resurrection? I think it's happening now because only by having these two truths put together that truth of Jesus' suffering and death and the truth of his divine glory, do we understand what Jesus is really about? I remember there was a season of my life where I worked in retail as a manager at a Target. And in, in the corporate pyramid there, at, I was at the Super Target, and there's like 250 people that work in this store, but at the very top of the pyramid is the store team leader, who's the guy that runs the whole store. And most of the time, you know, he was doing stuff and doing management stuff and things, but there were times that he would help out on the floor and times that he'd even jump in if there was some issue and like cover someone's break or something. And so what would happen is that um, he would, I, I, we'd watch him and he'd be like behind the counter at the deli or at Starbucks or something. And he would be serving customers, which we were supposed to call guests, but he would be serving customers and they had no clue who he was. 
They, you know, they, they couldn't tell the difference between him and any of the other employees at Target. They had no idea that he was the guy who ran the store, that he probably made more money than most of them, or that he could kick him out of the store at any time. But we knew, even though you couldn't see it in that moment, we knew, and that was what made it meaningful when he did it. That's the point of the transfiguration. That the guy who is going to be rejected and crucified in Jerusalem, that is the glorious divine Son of God, the Word of creation, the King of the universe. That is who is working our salvation through his suffering and death. All right, now let's talk about how that meets us. Remember, our question is, given that we're called by Jesus to enter into the river of suffering and loss and death, how can we do that? And why would we do that? The answer is that we need a vision of two things. We need a vision of two things. First, we need a vision of Jesus's glory. We need to gaze on Jesus, not just in terms of his humiliation and incarnation, but in terms of the transfigured reality of who he really is. One of the hallmarks of American culture and American Christianity for a long time, not just American, but this is where we live. But I think for a long time, we have this attitude that says that we like Jesus and we appreciate Jesus, but we're not very impressed by Jesus. We're not in awe of him, he's safe. We feel about Jesus the way we feel about that nice gentleman that lives down the street and gives our kids candies and shares old wise sayings with us. That safe, unimpressive Jesus, while he might feel comfortable and might at certain times be a comfort to you, that Jesus is not great enough to carry you through the river of suffering and death. He's not worth living for, and he is definitely not worth dying for. And that's a huge problem because in scripture, our motivation for discipleship is ultimately Jesus. Let me just show you, we're not gonna dwell here, but if you pick up in verse 25, it says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the son of man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the father and of the holy angels. So we don't have time to dwell on everything about these verses, but I just want you to notice something about the logic Jesus uses. He says, first of all, what profit is it if you gain the whole world, and he means by that the, the safety and comfort and wealth and the stuff that you're supposed to lose in taking up your cross. What profit is it if you gain the whole world but you lose yourself? And then, in parallel, he says this, you know, he says, um, basically, what does it mean to lose yourself then? <laughs> what, what am I talking about? Well, it's actually losing out on knowing the Son of Man and being in relationship with Him. It's losing out on His glory and the glory of the Father that we get through Him. The call to discipleship is only as great as our vision of Jesus' glory. The call to discipleship only is as strong, only is as effective in our hearts as is our vision for Jesus' glory. Which is why we must be reminded of the reality that he is glorious. He's glorious. Think about this. I mean, because of like children's Bibles and paintings and stuff, we all get this very specific picture of Jesus. Try this as a picture. In Revelation 1, 
John, using language that in many ways echoes some of what happens here, he describes this vision he has of Jesus right now on the throne in heaven. He's this towering figure with resplendent robes and eyes like fire and feet like bronze. And when he speaks, it is like thunder at which the earth trembles and his words are a sword and his face is the noonday sun. That is Jesus. I don't care if you're a tough guy or whatever. If you could behold the risen Christ right now, you would fall on your face and tremble in terror. He's glorious and majestic and compelling and powerful. And that makes him worth living for. And it makes him worth dying for. Because that divine, earth-shaking being is offering us himself and entering into relationship with us and calling him, calling us to follow him so that we can ultimately experience fellowship with him and with God the Father through him. We need that vision of Jesus' glory if we're going to cross through this river of suffering and loss and death. And alongside that, intertwined with that, we need a vision of Jesus' grace. We need a vision of Jesus' grace. In this passage, there are images of glory and grace that are just linked together deeply. That Jesus is declared to be the Messiah, the Christ of God, and immediately he speaks of his crucifixion on our behalf. That Jesus is transfigured and honored by these prophets, but they speak of the exodus Jesus must undertake from this world in order to set us free from the slavery to sin. And the thing we have to understand as we follow Jesus is that those two things must always stay together. The grace and the glory must always stay together. If you lose the glory of Jesus, the grace becomes meaningless. That has happened in plenty of parts of modern Christianity where you know, people say, God loves you, but, but all you feel is like a, yay, great, of course he does. I'm pretty great. He's not that impressive. That the measure of God's grace is always his glory, the distance that he stoops down to meet with and save us. And so we will not understand the grace of Jesus if we don't understand his glory. But if you lose the grace... The glory is going to crush you. It's going to wreck you. Here's what I mean. That vision of the glory of Jesus is actually enough in the moment to get you to pick up your cross and take the first step following him. That, that's enough to get, to, to get you to take the first step. But as you seek to engage in that calling over hours and days and years of your life, there's going to be times that you stumble. There's going to be times that the burden feels too heavy to bear. There's going to be times, I mean, no one fully consistently lives the calling to die to themselves and take up their cross in every way. I, we don't even come close to that most of the time. And so here's what we have to understand if we're going to endure in this calling. It is that Jesus only calls us to take up our crosses after he first proclaims the fact that he has taken up his that the face-shining, divine Jesus comes to rescue us from our slavery and only out of the rescue that he first works for us does he call us to serve and follow him. And that's the thing I love most, actually, about 
the Bunyan's account that we talked about in the Pilgrim's Progress at the beginning. I kind of skipped over this, but if you remember, Christian is out there floundering in the river and Hopeful is trying to encourage his heart. But the thing is, Hopeful actually, so first Hopeful says, I see the gate and I see the city and that doesn't solve it for Christian. And then Hopeful starts talking about suffering and how God works all things for good and that doesn't solve it for Christian either. He's still floundering until at last Hopeful says this. I'll read it. Hopeful added these words, Be of good cheer, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. And on that, Christian break out with a loud voice, Oh, I see him again. See, there in the river, Christian actually does recognize God's glory, but he simply in his sin can't believe that it's for him. And it's only with the words, Be of good cheer, Jesus Christ makes you whole that his vision is cleared and he is able to see Jesus again and so to cross the river. As we close, I just want to speak personally a little bit about all of that. Um, Both Elizabeth and I, in the last few years, were forced to enter into that river in a deeper and harder way than either of us ever had before, either of us expected through her cancer and terminal diagnosis and death, and then through for me walking beside her in that, and then also walking in grief afterwards. That That's very much the river. And the thing about it is people would often praise us for our faith or our strength, and that always bugged me. And, and yes, part of why it bugged me is because I'm a Midwestern guy, and... We don't like compliments, but mostly that bugged me because I feel like what they seem to think is there's something in us or about us that was making the difference in how we walked through it. And that just wasn't true because Elizabeth and I both knew, and I know to this day what makes the difference. We would talk about it. Both of us were so grateful that we had been given a vision of Christianity and discipleship that was great enough, sufficient enough to sustain us through that suffering. I mean, that includes, first of all, a vision of Christianity that gave an honest account of that suffering. I mean, we never expected our story to turn out the way that it did, but we weren't shocked, in a sense, because we had always been told that the reality of following Jesus involved suffering and loss and death. But much more than that, what we were so grateful for was that through churches and ministries and books and people in our lives. We had been given a vision of Jesus that was sufficient for us walking through that. That We had a vision of his greatness, his all-surpassing worth and glory and sufficiency, and a vision of his unbelievable grace, his crazy pursuit of us, even though he didn't deserve it at the cost of his own life. And it was those things that sustained us through the process of suffering. And I, I, yeah, it's, so, it's so weird to even talk about that. I'm not saying that like, oh, it was great that we had this vision. I'm just saying like, I mean, I'm a doof, right? That just kind of muddles through life. But because we had been given that vision of Jesus, we were able to persevere. Have you had that vision of Jesus? And is your heart fixed on that? Have you tasted of the beauty and value and glory of Jesus? Do you understand from the heart? Do you feel the reality of his all-surpassing worth? That even though it would cost us everything in this world, it is worth it because of the glory of knowing him. And have you experienced the comfort and support 
the grace of Jesus, the joy and peace of his undeserved love and his delight in us despite our sins. Friend, fix your heart on those things because they provide the vision that we need and the vision that we must constantly seek to regain if we are to follow Jesus in this world. That is what will sustain you through the river of suffering and loss and death. And to Canaan's side and fellowship with our Savior on its far shore. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I just pray that you would arrest our hearts with a vision of you and a vision of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, may we, in your glory, in the glory of Jesus, May we find the motivation and the joy that bears us forward as we take up our crosses. Help us to take up our crosses, Lord. Forgive us as your church for the many ways that we've made light of this calling. Help us to die to ourselves and seek to follow you and do that because we recognize that in you is something worth far more than anything in this world that we can lose. And Father, speak to us of the grace that you worked in and through Jesus. Apply that grace to our hearts and build us up in it. Father, I pray that you would do this for us here as your church at Kish. I pray that you would do this for your church in the world. I pray that we might be those who proclaim your glory and your grace to the nations. Father, be at work in and through us. In the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, your Chosen One. Amen. Amen.